Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Addictive Pod. For most addicts, we have a story. We have a story that we tell ourselves of why we went into the addiction that we did. We feel sorry for ourselves. We feel pity. We want other people to hear our story and feel sorry for us. And I have my addiction because this happened to me and it was so terrible. And that is such a powerful victim mentality to escape from. And on today's episode, I have a very special guest. His name is Dave. He is from, he's also a guest on the Recovery Radio podcast with Clay. And on today's episode, he comes on to share about how he breaks out of this victim mentality, how he lets go of self-pity, and through working the steps, completely loses the desire to drink and to use drugs. This is such a practical episode. It's really filled with things that you can do in your life. So grab a notepad, take some notes. Dave is a masterclass teacher on the steps. So I hope you enjoy. Dave, how's it going? Welcome to the Addictive Pod. Awesome. Uh, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm I'm in miserable uh, Canadian weather right now. So are you? jealous of texas but aside from that i'm good it is beautiful out here today i'm excited to talk to you i've had i'm like collecting all of clay's friends and, <laughs> and hearing their stories yeah um, clay's, clay's all right he's an, he's an okay guy and a, an amazing an amazing male model too i don't know if you knew that but <laughs> he's hot i was so confused when i heard his podcast i was like this yeah. guy's an asshole he's just like <laughs> <laughs> he, all he d- talks about is like modeling and yeah. being rich. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. He's piping hot. Like his yeah. coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Clay is the host of Recovery Radio podcast, an amazing podcast. Um, I have no problem losing audience to, to that show because it's so good. <laughs> um, but let's talk about your story. I know that before coming into before alcohol before these different addictions i know that um there's trauma in your past there's there's a lot to get into in your past that we can talk about as well but let's start off a little lighter where where are you born what was your uh what were the best parts of your childhood oh man i was i was born in nebraska and uh man the best part i mean i had an amazing childhood i really did i i <laughs> the the long version of my story would include like me you know I, I my father owned his own business and he did really well so I, I was kind of like a privileged kid living in in like the really nice area of Omaha Nebraska and you know I had everything I needed and um uh, I had you know very outgoing kid I had no filter no insecurities or anything like that um, I had a blast and then. When I was uh, nine years old, uh, my world really just kind of just went upside down. My parents got divorced. My dad left and he took the money with him. We went from, uh, I went from the rich part of Nebraska, Omaha, uh, to the, not poor, but uh, more of a middle class, I guess, area. Um, I went from public school to Catholic school. I, uh, I, I got glasses. I had this disease in my, in my hip where I had to, oh, I had wow. to like have, I have surgically, they broke my hip and put a bunch of hardware in there. And this is all when I was from age nine to 10, like, and I had to wear this body cast from my chest oh, down my legs for, for two months. And, uh, like I said, public school to Catholic school. So it was just thrown into a completely new world, um, 
at age nine and uh and i, and I, I became kind of sheltered um started to like really get into my head and and I guess just at, at some point, like the kid, the Catholic kids were just so different from the privileged. I went know. to Catholic school. So what was, what <laughs> yeah. was your experience? So like I said, I mean, I grew up in this privileged, you know, really the best word I can think of is like sheltered. Like, uh, you know, I just wasn't exposed to like the streets or, you know, like anything nasty, you know, like, and then when I moved to like the Catholic kids are, they're, they're like cussing and talking about sex and drinking and shit. Like, and I'm like, you know, nine years old, you know, this is just like a new world for me. And I, like I said, I just kind of just laid back and, and monitored for a while and, I guess maybe for about a year and then I just got to be so lonely that um, I, I, I decided like I need to make friends and I, I'd never really been faced with like how do you make friends this is something that had always evolved in the past and but these are different kids and like I don't know how, how do you make friends and the thing was my uh, when my parents got divorced my dad we used to have like this 20 foot fully stocked bar and my dad left that. It was all boxed up, and it got moved to my to my new house. And I, I guess I just did the math. You know, I, I need friends. How do you how do you make friends? I, I guess you buy them. You know, like I know what they want. They talk about drinking. I got mm. alcohol, so it's like, hey, you know, come over to my house. We'll drink alcohol, and and that's how I made friends. And at age ten, uh, yeah, age ten. Wow, yeah. ten to ten to thirteen were my. Uh, What's the drinking age in Nebraska? <laughs> It's 21. Yeah. <laughs> even, and I'm fairly old too, but even back then I, there was like, I think I, I remember in, uh, in Minnesota, I went to Minnesota once when I was 18 and it was 18 there, the drinking age. But, um, yeah, no, I started drinking at 10 and, uh, had, uh, I was, I kind of jokingly say, and it's really true too, that, but that 10 to 13 were my, you know, social drinking years. Like <laughs> I had, I had, a, I had a really had a blast from 10 to 13, but then, uh, and 13 is when I, I, I got raped by a guy. That was, that was my trauma that, you know, you and I kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, but that was just another event where my life completely turned upside down again. And I was just faced with this new reality that I didn't know how to deal with and just you know a lot of fears and insecurities and humiliation humiliation was huge uh self-pity anger how did you make sense of that uh, that event happening like was it just sort of forget about that numb out as much as you could don't talk about it or how did you i didn't have that i don't even know if i want to say it would it's a luxury i don't i'm sure it's not a luxury to 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 be able to um you know, stuff that or, or, or not talk about it uh, or, or pretend it didn't happen. If my situation was everybody knew. Oh, uh, wow. I was, I was at a party and uh, I, I was walking home in the middle of the night. This is Nebraska. I was walking through this field in the middle of the night and I got jumped randomly. I, I mean, I, I don't know who the guy is or anything, um, but yeah, he beat me up. He raped me. I ended up in the hospital. Cops are called. They start interviewing people that were at the party. So it wasn't something that um, I could uh, ignore or just, you know, pretend didn't happen. It's like wow. everybody knew. So, yeah. but I didn't deal with it in any healthy way whatsoever. No. That's that's horrific. That's terrible. Yeah. How did it affect your drinking? Oh, I went for it, it was uh so 
like I said, I, you know, I kind of jokingly say I, you know, my social drinking years were from 10 to 13, but it's also very true. Um, so when that happened, um, I really immediately started relying or depending on drinking in, in pretty stark contrast to, to what it had been before. It, it was just, I was just so humiliated and so ashamed and so angry. Um, you know, I was looking for, you know, that feeling of, uh, you know, belonging and just, you know, no insecurities and just carefree, like, I, you know, the, the alcohol had done for me before, but now it's like, you know, if I'm going to be in a room with somebody and, you know, look at them in the face or talk to them, you know, I, I need, I need to, to be drinking. I became, I, I for sure became much more dependent on it, you know, quick. Did your mom or anybody in your life notice you're drinking at this point and how did they respond to that? Um, my mom did. It's my mom is, uh, an alcoholic as well. And she's a member of a, now she's been sober for 30 something years, but, um, yeah, it it was the whole thing, you know, was really rough for her as well. This, the whole, the divorce thing, my, and my mother had never, I mean, she got married when she was 21. She has a learning disorder, um, that was recently diagnosed, you know, she's in her, late seventies now. Um, but you know, when she was a kid, like they didn't even, I mean, learning disorder wasn't a thing, you know, people just, you know, teachers, teachers called her stupid and, um, you know, she grew up like that. And, uh, and, and then her husband was kind of emotionally, not kind of, but he was, he was emotionally abusive to her and, um, she never really worked or anything. So when, when they got divorced, you know, it was a new environment for her, a new world for her. And, uh, I think, I guess where I'm going with this is, um, she knew that I drank and she was okay with it. As a matter of fact, there was, there was a time I remember I was 13 years old and, uh, um, she bought a bottle of, uh, peppermint schnapps for me and me and my buddy. Um, a kid's drink. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like I said, she, she had her own challenges and I I think, you know, she was, you know, fearful that she would lose, you know, me or I don't know if that makes any sense, but, um, I know what it's like to have, I I have a daughter and I want her, Mm. I want to be a friend, you know? And, and, uh, and I think my mom didn't know how to be a mom, um, but so she tried to be a friend and just kind of let me do whatever I wanted and encourage it. Maybe not encourage it, but she for sure enabled it. Right, right. Yeah. How long did this go on for? I mean, drinking to that extent, you're 13. Did it? Did you reach any other consequences, or did anybody else find out about it at school? Did you face any consequences? Um, no, I didn't. People were... I, I was just so angry and so full of self-pity. And, and a lot of this, um, I got a lot of relief from this stuff, uh, you know, doing the steps, but, um, I guess, you know, in my mind at the time, uh, people were abandoning me. People didn't know how to deal with it. You know, my, I, mean, I was 13 years old. I get raped by a guy. It's just so embarrassing. And I have friends that they don't know how to deal with it, deal with it either. Like they know yeah. what happened. It's like, eh, do we talk about it? And like, you know, and I was just so full of anger and self pity. And, and I remember like, you know, I just, I can picture myself like going to parties and, and, uh, you know, I can, I can picture myself like walking up to the door of the party and I hear all the laughter and the fun going on inside. And then I walk in and it's like, 
you know, like mm. the, the wind was taken out of it. Like, oh, there's wow. Dave. Like, how, how do we deal with this? You know, so a lot of people, um, it, I, I made people uncomfortable. I mean, it was an uncomfortable thing, I, I guess. I, I don't want to say I made them. Yeah, I encouraged. <laughs> I for sure made made it more uncomfortable than it needed to be. But What did um, you do that made it more uncomfortable, do you think? My anger and my... Okay. Uh, uh, I, I lost the ability i don't know when exactly it happened like i said i i became really emotionally dependent on drinking so i would because i'm trying to hit that sweet spot you know where i become funny and outgoing and no inhibitions you know and uh i i lost the ability to hit that sweet spot and i just like plow right past it and become offensive and insulting uh, and, and ugly, um, and no fun to be around. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I mean, the short of it is that, uh, I, I lost a lot of my friends aren't probably all of them really. And, uh, and just became, you know, like I said, I was so, so full of insecurity and self-pity and anger. It was just no fun to be around. Were there any serious consequences though? Like a, an authority figure catching you or affecting your schooling? Not that I got in trouble. My school was, uh, yeah, I went from, you know, an A student to, you know, Ds and Fs. Um, I think, like I said, you know, I think people were probably afraid to discipline me in any way because I just, I would just, I was so reactive and I'd just pull out the self-pity card. Like, you, you can't be mad at me. You don't even know what it's like to be me. Right. And, you know, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm sure my parents were afraid to, like, really discipline me I, I managed to get through school uh, i didn't have any like legal trouble and I, I got a dui when i was 20. um that was when i was first introduced to aa i had to go to 10 AA meetings um but just yeah over the years i have a few arrests you know <laughs> a few jail stories heavily into drugs um it went on for a long long time move i was a mover mm. i just move I, i'd move someplace geographical cure yeah move someplace where nobody knows me and nobody knows my story and so you know right. i just I, I feel like you know if they didn't even know about that it's you know i don't have to deal with it and but you know like i said i i i, I lost that the ability to hit that sweet spot. So I might move someplace new and make a few friends, but as soon as I start drinking, I get ugly and offensive and no fun to be around. And, right. uh, and when that happens, I, I move again. So, I mean, that was my routine for many, many years. Tell me about going to the AA meetings when you're 20. I'm guessing you weren't too thrilled. Oh yeah. No, I wasn't thrilled with it at all. I, I, uh, I didn't, for sure, I didn't want to join their club. This was, you know, I was required by law to go. I remember, um, I remember it was probably, it had to be a closed meeting, you know, where, where, you know, you go around the room and you're like, oh, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Linda, I'm an alcoholic, blah, blah. I remember sitting there just like with my arms folded, like, fuck this, you know, and people going around the room, like, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Lisa, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm just like, I'm not fucking saying it. You know, mm. and uh, and then it would get around to me, and I'd be like, "I'm Dave." It'd just be this discomfort, this uncomfortable silence for before the you know nice. the next person realizes, "Oh, he's not going to say it." So. <laughs> <laughs> and they just continue, but uh, yeah. I, the funny thing is, I remember like I remember going to like I don't know six or seven meetings. This is in 1989 too, and uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, 
and I go to like six or seven meetings, and I remember starting to feel like, you know what, maybe I do belong here, you know, and mm. uh, and and they'd be going around the room. I'm Jim. I'm an alcoholic. I'm Lisa. I'm an alcoholic, and I'd I'd be thinking, I think I might say it this time. I think I might do it, you know, uh, but I never did. And uh, so, like I said, I, w- I went to maybe I don't know a total of seven or eight meetings. I, I was sentenced to ten. And, uh, and at some point my probation officer got transferred or something like that. And I was like super close. I was only like two weeks shy of my six month probation. And, uh, and so they just let me loose. And so I I only went to like eight of the 10 meetings and I just, I remember thinking, yeah, fuckers. (laughs) Gotcha. Fuck the man. Sentenced me to 10. I only did eight. Yeah. I'm so curious. I, I think this is something I think about a lot because of the stats, right? People talk about like, oh, the 12 steps, only like 5% of people stay sober or like yeah. 90% of people leave. So it doesn't work. It's a terrible system. It's ineffective. Right. Why do you think you left? Is there anything it, it could have they could have done better as a meeting? Or do you just think of it in terms of your own responsibility and where you were at? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, for one, I think it's, you know, it's probably pretty impossible to, to keep stats on a, an anonymous program. Um, you know, I, I know that there's the, I don't know where all the, all the, uh, the variables or, or what kind of stats they're keeping. Uh, but I've heard that, you know, five to 7% or something like that stay sober, but you know, I don't know, does that include people that have gone to rehab or uh, I can say for my, my, my myself like i didn't want to be there at that time yeah for sure so i mean it's 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 a no-go that's there's no hope when you don't even have a desire to i don't know you know the the third tradition um states now it states that the only requirement for a membership is the desire to stop drinking and uh I i remember being well into my 30s and being in an AA meeting and and, you know, I see the traditions on the wall, the third, third tradition, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I remember feeling like I don't have that. Mm. I, I, I don't really honestly have a desire to stop drinking. I mean, if I did, I just, I would, if I didn't want to drink, then I, I would not drink. I, I'd be, I was confused by that. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Isn't part of an alcoholic having an overwhelming desire right. to drink most of the time? Like, you know, if I didn't have the desire, I wouldn't fucking drink, you know? Um, but uh, I just couldn't imagine not drinking, and uh, I, I had a desire to have a desire to stop drinking. I I, uh, I sort of back up here a little bit, but also pertinent to what we're talking about. In 1989, when I got my DUI, um, this is also when the movie My, my Name is Bill W. came out. If you've ever okay, amazing seen that movie. movie. Yeah, yeah it's James Woods and James Garner play play Bill and Bob and um it was the hallmark hall of fame movie of the week you know in 1989 and and my mother recorded it she wanted me to watch it and i had just gotten this dui you know but um i remember they the, james woods and james garner went on the donahue show it was an old talk show in the 80s to promote their movie and um i remember watching that and james woods i was super impressed with james woods he's he's a he's a extremely well-spoken, smart guy. Um, he was interesting to listen to. He's talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't really know shit about Alcoholics Anonymous, but it, it, he was, I, I found him interesting. 
And there's a couple things that I remember from that episode. At one point, he asked everybody in the audience, there's like 300 people in the audience. He's like, how many people in the audience have been affected by alcoholism? Either you're an alcoholic or you've got a a family member who's an alcoholic and it's affected you. And so 300 hands go up. Like, I mean, there was nobody in the audience who wasn't affected by alcoholism in some way. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then uh, at one point, this guy had called into the show and I I, maybe, I don't know, I guess the, the producers felt that maybe James Woods could help this guy. So they put him on speakerphone so he could talk to him. And this guy's describing his life and he's like, you know, I'm miserable. I'm, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I, I just, you know, I'm drinking right now. You know, it's the middle of the day and I'm drinking and I don't have a job and my wife is ready to leave me and my, my life is just falling apart and I'm miserable. And, and James Woods said to the guy, if there was a big red button in front of you and if you were to push that button, you'd never drink again. Would you push it? And the, the guy was like, uh and, uh, and James Wood said, wait, let me actually rephrase the question. He says, uh, if there was a big red button in front of you, and if you were to push that button, you wouldn't want to drink anymore. Would you push it? And immediately the guy said, yes, I'd push that button for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and James Wood said, that button is AA. And that stuck with me for many, many years. But um, I guess to, to, to my, the point that I was making earlier, like looking at the third tradition and thinking like, I don't have a desire to have to, to stop drinking. I have a desire to have a desire to stop. Like I, I would love to not want to drink. Right. I would love for the desire to drink go away. When I hear the name Bill W, I actually picture James Woods because I just really? think he, yeah. he does such a fantastic job in that movie. And he, yeah. he really shows that just the insanity of the disease right the fact that he loses all this stuff and he's still all he wants he's telling lois is 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 a drink that's all he wants in that moment yeah um that's really interesting that's really interesting about the desire to have the desire that distinction yeah where does that take you though because you're in your 30s you're going into aa again at this point or you're just thinking about going into aa i was in and out so you know i was introduced when i was 20 um, I, I got the first time I, I spent a night in jail, I was 23. And at that point I went to AA, uh, on my own and managed to stay sober for 15 months. And, and I remember, um, uh, Kurt, Kurt Cobain died and, uh, and I went to the bar and I drank mm. and, um, for the next, I don't know. 10 years or so I was just in and out, in and out. It was like that 15 month stretch was the most I had been able to like put together. And it is, you know, after, and then I would drink and then I'd get maybe, you know, maybe nine months and then I'd drink and then I'd get six months and then I'd drink and I'd drink for longer. And then I'd get three months and then I'd drink and I'd drink for longer. And it just became, yeah, just What a, did you a do mess. during those stretches? Like the 15 month stretch, for example, were you, what were you doing? You would just go to the meetings or were you working with the sponsor? What was it like? I did. I, I, I went to meetings and I and I, I, I really got involved in the fellowship and uh, I made friends and I did have a sponsor who took me through the steps to, to, to the best of his ability. Um, I, you know, I mean, I have a completely different understanding of of the steps and of the big book now. Um, and I can look back on those times and, and um, I got a different message. I, I, I don't know if you ever had uh, my buddy Christian. I don't know if he's ever been on your show, but he, he has this perfect analogy of um, he says, uh, if you want to if you want to 
say you want to do yoga. So you go down to the local yoga studio, you, you pay your dues, you get your outfit, you get your mat, and then you're you're in the studio and you're doing yoga with a couple other people. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in carrying an exercise bike and they set that up in the middle of the studio and they start biking and people are like, what are you doing? And the guy's like, I'm fucking doing yoga. Clearly. I mean, I'm in a yoga studio, so obviously I'm doing yoga. And then somebody comes in swinging a kettlebell, you know, and uh, it's like, what are you doing? Like, I'm in a, I'm in a yoga studio. So clearly what I'm doing is yoga. And it's not, it's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with swinging a kettlebell or anything, but don't call it yoga because it's not. Um, and, and that's, same thing happens in AA. A, a lot of things are said. And I should preface by saying I fucking love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love AA meetings. I love the people of AA. But there's a lot of things that are said in AA meetings that are uh, completely contradictory to, to AA and direct conflict with, with AA. So, um, you know, when I say I did, I did, I did work with a sponsor a lot of my dependence was on sponsor sponsor guidance you know was more of like a therapist type relationship and stuff but um i wasn't able to really maintain i wasn't able to achieve what the steps are designed to 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 create so would you say you were one of the people doing uh kettlebell swings and on the on the biking machine or what was the issue there yeah yeah it's that that's the message that 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 was delivered to me and I'm sure, and I, I, I'm, I'm not blaming anybody for passing on, uh, the, the incorrect message. Um, right. but that's the message I got. Um, and I'm, and I know it was well-intentioned. Um, yeah. I, I, and then, yeah, I became the person who was swinging the kettlebell and stuff, but I was not doing AA. I was going to AA meetings, but I was not, you know, if AA is what is in the, the book, the program is what's in the book, then a lot of things that we you know, commonly hear in meetings are in direct conflict with that. Can you give me an example of something that you commonly heard or that you were actually practicing, you were doing at the time that is in contradiction to the big book? Play the tape all the way through. That's that's one of the ones I okay. yeah. Play the tape all the way through. Yeah, remember how bad that was? You know, um, That's in direct conflict with what the big book says. You know, we're, we're unable at certain times to, to, to bring into our memory with sufficient force. can't think clearly. Right. Yeah. Um, the, you know, and I'll take, I usually, you know, when I'm talking about this, like there's a couple of examples, there's, there's some funny, some things in my life that are funny now. Um, but a couple of examples, like I told you, I, the first time I went, actually went to jail, I was, I was 23 years old and uh, I had gotten arrested for public intox at my employee Christmas party, which was hugely uh, humiliating. And uh, I mean, my sister's husband was the boss of this company. Um, it was one of those things. I, I, I got drunk and I got ugly and I got offensive and, and violent and I got arrested at my employee Christmas party. And it was, you know, my entire family was like, they've had it with me. You know, I, I get out of jail the next day and I'm like, okay, that's, that's it. You know, I've reached bottom and, um, you know, the next time I want to drink, I'll, I'll, I'll play that tape through, you know, but the next time I really wanted a drink, I, you know, I think like, ah, it wasn't that bad or like, I mean, mm. fuck, it's not even Christmas anymore. Like, how am I going to get arrested at a Christmas party? You know, <laughs> can't happen. You know, uh, I only so get I, arrested at Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, 
the last time I was arrested, I was, I was 39 years old, I think. And I got arrested again for public intoxicant at my, uh, in my back, in my front yard, actually. I, the story is I, uh, I did a lot of meth too. So I was, I'm not a big intimidating Yikes. guy, but uh, you know, with the meth and like, I was, I was like 114 pounds and I'm like, you know, five, 10, 114 pounds, but I got uh, aggressive. I got aggressive. Yeah. I was wow. in, I was in my backyard and, and, uh, and I was wearing this, this wife beater that was like saggy. I mean, it wasn't even tight, you know, but I got a few tattoos. Like I got a tattoo of my grandma here and I got like an yeah. angel, you know? And, uh, but and, I don't know, in my mind, I'm, I'm <laughs> in this wife beater that I'm busting out of and I'm tatted up and yeah. I'm a badass. And this cop is giving me a hard time. I'm in my backyard and I'm fucking, you know, lunging at him and shit, you know, just like flexing and, you know, and he's backing yeah. up and, and, and I'm thinking, you know, makes sense. You're backing up. You're scared of me. I'm an intimidating guy. and <laughs> fucking flex at him again, you know, and eventually he's backing up really because he knows I'll, I'll keep coming and, and eventually we'll end up in public. I'll end up in the front yard, which wow. I did. And, uh, and as soon as, as soon as my, as soon as my foot hits the front yard, he uh he whips out the handcuffs and i take a swing at him and then he tasers me and then oh, i shit wow. my pants and so that's where the taser oh, dave no. thing comes is from is that taser dave yeah no, no. so yeah i shit my pants i go to taser jail the next dave. day the next day i'm like done i'm done <laughs> drinking i'll play that tape through you know and yeah. uh and that time it was four days later i wanted to drink and i thought you know what i'll just stay in the house this is the this is the problem, right? I think a lot of people might be able to play that tape and yeah. quit drinking before getting tased by a cop, right? Because right. they're not actually alcoholics. They're right. a problem drinker. They're somebody who doesn't have that obsession, doesn't have that level of alcoholism. And I think that that's what's so confusing about going to meetings. You have this motley crew of people with different levels of substance abuse problems all right. talking about the 12 steps, but... Really, what's this program designed for? What are they talking about? They're talking about like severe addiction. Right, right. And and thinking the drink like playing the tape through is is seems like an easier solution, and it and it it seems like a, a logical solution if you're not alcoholic, if you if you don't know what an obsession. Like I had a friend that used to refer to the the obsession as the thought that overrides all other thoughts. Like if I'm obsessing on drinking, I'm fucking drinking. I mean, yeah. it's gonna happen. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it seems like a, a, a logical explanation when somebody gets hurt bad enough, like don't do what hurts you, you know, uh, don't drink or use no matter what, like it. And then it seems like that's an easier, like, I don't want to do the steps, you know, that is a fucked up story, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you why taser Dave, but, um, yeah, I thought why. at first I thought like you carried around a taser for some reason, yeah, like no. you were like a paranoid guy. <laughs> That's you one of the, tased. <laughs> that's one of the, the stories that, you know, none of them were ever funny at the time, but it's, yeah. I can laugh about it now, but I can prom I believe me for every one of those events that I can now laugh about, there's three or four that'll never be funny. Like people get hurt and it's mm. you know, never going to be a funny thing. The crazy thing is talking to you now, I cannot even imagine you doing that. Like you're just such a level-headed person just an average looking guy like i cannot picture you in that wife beater it's just too oh, yeah. bizarre um but how do you get how do you get to the place you are now you're you're not that person you don't have that obsession how does that happen it's it's steps uh i, I can tell you like 
in hindsight and looking at the entirety of my my um, experience uh, in life and in and out of AA, um, there were bits and pieces where like there was a profound moment where something a light bulb went off and um, there was a, a point where it seems like the planets and stars aligned in such a way where, where I, it, it made sense to me. I remember being in a meeting and, and reading, it was a big book study and we were reading um, chapter two and there's a story in there about this guy. He's referred to as the American, uh, certain American businessman. His name was, his name was Roland Hazard. And, uh, oh, really? That was him? Yeah. He, he was an alcoholic and uh he he had money he was always able to just like throw money at his problems and see like the best doctors and whatnot and he ends up getting treated by you know carl Jung, like one of the greatest psychiatrists the world's ever known like a smart right. guy you know and uh so he gets treated by carl Jung, and and he's you know afterwards he's convinced he's never going to drink again but he does and then he goes back to carl Jung, and carl was like ah sorry you, you know you're fucked people like you just don't recover and and roland begged him for a different answer and and carl Jung said i i have seen people like you recover and he says uh people these people have they have a spiritual experience and then he describes the spiritual experience as a complete psychic change and they, he says, like, ideas, emotions, and attitudes are cast aside, and a completely new set of motives begin to dominate this person. And he describes that as a, as a spiritual experience slash psychic change. Like, you can use them interchangeably, you know? Mm. And uh, and I remember, like, the light bulb went off. That's what, what James Woods was talking about. When he when he was talking about the red big red button, you push the button and you wouldn't want to drink anymore. If I were to have a complete psychic change, 180 degrees... Another another pet peeve of mine is when people say, "Oh, I've had a 360 degree change." It's like, ah, you're back you to really where want, you were before. Yeah, you don't, that's not. Yeah, you don't really want that. Math if you want a complete one, it's, <laughs> if you want a complete one, it would be 180 degrees. But I was like, you know, so if I am constantly thinking about drinking and using drugs, and I were to have a 180 degree change, I would, I would not be thinking about drinking or using drugs it would it would go from like the most important thing in my life to something that's unimportant and that's what james woods was talking about and and the steps are designed to cause that like like carl Jung didn't know how to it was easier for carl Jung to just tell roland i'm sorry you're fucked uh, you know people like you don't recover than to say well you could recover if you have a spiritual experience but then not know how to like make that happen for him in there was no recipe for to, to cause or to create a person having a, a spiritual experience. But, but now we have 12 steps that are, that's what they do. They're, 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 they're a recipe to, to, to cause a person to have a, a spiritual experience. And, and I understood that. And I remember, I remember being in the meeting and, and thinking like the steps are designed to do that. It's like, there's a coffee machine in, in the, in the other room, which is designed to make coffee. And if you follow the directions, if you put, coffee in the filter and you put the filter in the basket and then you pour water in and then you push the button you end up with a pot of coffee uh and so i was like that's the steps are, are designed to cause a person to have a spiritual experience psychic change um I, I had a desire to have a desire to not drink and if i worked the steps i would have that psychic change and uh and then drinking would become unimportant to me i wanted that to happen and that's ultimately what happened. But I mean, a whole, a whole bunch of other things like 
just really a profound life altering perspective, change in perspective, uh, a change in mentality, uh, you know, all kinds of things. You know, the, the steps are designed to cause a person to have a spiritual experience. The 12 step says, having had a, a spiritual uh, right. experience or uh, awakening as the result of these steps, they, they will cause you to have a spiritual awakening. Well, okay. Now, a spiritual awakening, there's all kinds of results that come from having a spiritual awakening. And one of those results is that, uh, you know, the obsession to drink is, is, has, has left. Um, and, you know, and there's, you know, obviously I got to continue working steps 10, 11 and 12 and, you know, maintain and grow my, my spiritual experience and my spiritual awakening, um, in order to, 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 to maintain that feeling of, you know, the obsession to drink going away. But, um, but also just like a, a lot of, like I said, just incredible change in mentality. Like I'm not a victim anymore. I, I don't, mm. I don't like, I was a victim for so long. We talked about this. I, I, right. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit, I think before, you know, we started recording, but um, you know, I see the the trauma for me was, it was a package deal. Like there was for sure, there's, there's a, a this traumatic event. There's trauma that should be dealt with uh professionally with a trauma therapist or counselor or whatever the steps don't address trauma um but the package deal for me was I, there was a lot of anger hugely angry and fear and self-pity that were a package deal with that trauma and the steps dealt with all of that and so you know i'm i'm not I'm not at all a victim at this point in my life. I, you know, I can, I can, of course I can, I can get angry, but I've got tools so that I don't, you know, hang on to the anger. Um, I, I don't like lose control of myself and, you know, like I used to, um, there's, you know, self-pity has left me. I can see that. Come and go. I can yeah. sense that just talking to you. I don't feel any pity for you because of the way you talk about your past, which is so interesting. Like, I, I bet if I met you when you were 16 and you told me about your past, I would feel so sorry for you because of yeah. the way you probably present yourself or the way it was right. sort of manifesting in you. So it's it's really visible, like, the, the fact that you feel that way, which is interesting to me talking Good. to you. Um I'm really interested about the psychic change and about step six and seven. I kind of want to dive into that. There's so okay. many things we could talk about here, but yeah. specifically, I, I think that six and seven is kind of that the the change in um, attitudes and the change in uh, how we are as a person. It's a personality change, right? Do you agree with me on that? And and how, what's your experience like in six and seven? Uh, well, with six and seven, um, it, We've talked a little bit about the workshop, and it's it's something that we address in the workshop. Um, the founding members of Alcoholics Anonymous, the the first 100 members, they they didn't do 12 steps. They did six. There's there's six steps, and there's they're listed in the book. This was before the big book was written, right? Yeah. Bill at one point decided when he was started writing the book, he decided that he wanted it to be uh, 12 steps. Um, and there was really no rhyme or rhythm to it. He just, the number 12 was sounded good it's, to him. It's a significant number for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 12 months, 12 disciples, whatever, you know, For sure. he wanted it to be 12 steps. So he did stretch. He took this, the original six steps and then he 
and he broke some of them into like multiple steps. But the, the original six steps that all of them had done um, are in the big book. It's in a, in a story called He Sold Himself Short, uh, if anybody wants to look it up. But the original six steps were, um, number one was complete deflation. And if you think about the 12 steps as we now know them, that wasn't stretched into anything else. Uh, it's still step one. Step one. Step two was uh, dependence and guidance from a higher power. That was... We'll talk about that in a minute, but it was stretched into many, many steps. Um, step three was moral inventory. That again, if we look at Four our steps five, as we basically. now know them, it's yeah, it's it's well, no, uh, the the original four step was confession. So that's that's oh, what I we see. now know is step five. So um, and then the original fifth step was restitution, which we now know is steps eight and nine. Uh, making amends, making a list of amends and, and making the amends. And uh, the original sixth step was continued work with other alcoholics, which we now know as, as step 12. So if you look at that, um, you can see which ones were stretched. Um, the restitution was... was st- where where did six and seven come from? It's not in there. Wow. It's really not. Unless you... Unless you include it in the original sex... Uh, sex the original second step was dependence and guidance from a higher power. I could see how step six and seven would fall into that category. It's, you know, I'm willing to have God remove these defects of character and and, and humbly asking him to do so. I, I mean, that's, I guess, you know, reliance on God, but um, it's not something, it can't really be reconciled in those first six steps. I've never, I've never heard that before, but it, it almost makes sense because in the big book, there's such minimal guidance yeah. on step six and seven. Yeah. It makes sense. Bill is just kind of uh, like, it's new stuff. It's new territory. Right, right. It's not something that, at least in my understanding of, of you know, the big book and, um, you know, the way they originally did it, uh, like you said, there's just, there's really ultimately there's virtually no instruction in there on how to do step six and seven. It's like, it's like, I've done this inventory. I've my, my character defects are identified in the inventory. You know, it's, it's going to be, you know, resentment, fear, uh, ego, dishonesty, you know, selfishness. Like it's, it's all on paper. And then I do the fifth step and I've, I've purged this. Mm. (laughs) And then after the fifth step, I take an hour to reflect and then, when I'm ready, am I am I willing to have God remove these things which I've just admitted are objectionable? Uh, it's 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 all been put on paper. It's ugly. It's like it doesn't work in life. It's it's not benefiting you know anybody. It's gross. Am I willing to have God remove that? Yeah. Um, step seven is humbly ask Him. So I say the seven step prayer by asking Him to uh, to remove these things. And if you think about the the speed with which the original members did this there was you know it was very quick that's like so, 20 minutes yeah and and then it says you know in the big book let's look at steps eight and nine and then it says we already have the list of people that we we owe amends to it's it's in the inventory it's you know mm. uh, we already had that we made it when we took inventory and then we go out and make amends and then when it gets to step 10 it says uh you know we've entered the world of the spirit Next function is to grow in understanding effectiveness. Um, we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So if you think about it, while I'm making amends, I should be doing step 10. It's continue to watch for selfishness. Right. 
continue to watch for dishonesty and resentment and fear. So continue to watch for these character defects. And when they come up, ask God to remove them, use the tools. But so if you think about the speed with which like, okay, I've, I've done my inventory, I've, I've, I've done my fifth step, I've, I've shared it with somebody. Am I, am I ready to have God remove these things? Six and seven aren't a commitment that I'm never going to do these things again. It's like, it's just, I'm, yeah, I'm willing to have God remove this, this garbage from my life. Yeah. And then I ask him to do so. And there's really step eight is done. And then I start doing nine. And while I'm doing nine, I continue to watch for these character defects. What would you say were the biggest character defects that you noticed in the last 10, 12 years, uh, change in you? Um, so resentment is for sure, you know, at least heart hanging on to the anger, um, is nowhere near what I, like, you know, it's, I'm a pretty even keel guy. I don't get, I don't get riled up or, or angry too easily, but I, I for sure it, it happens. And, um, and I have tools that, you know, to, well, you know, when we get into like the inventory, it's like, right. We recognize that there's no value in, in harboring resentments. And so we, we get tools so that we can master them is really, you know, what, what the, what the book says. And, um, so resentment is for sure a huge improvement. My life was ruled by resentment and fear and self-pity. Um, the self-pity uh, has left. I have not experienced that in 12 years, uh, honestly. That's incredible. Um, fear, yeah, for sure. I'm a human being. It comes up. It happens. I have tools for it. You know, anger, for sure. It shows up. Ego, all of that stuff, it shows up. Um, but the the self-pity thing is, is, one of the, is one thing that just has left and has not come back. What do you attribute that to? I mean, was there, what was, what was the moment that really changed for you? Um, I'm pretty sure it was, it was somewhere in the inventory. Um, there's a line in there where they're, they're, they're talking about, um, they're talking about resentment. They're talking about anger and it says, um, to harbor such feelings, uh, or we can see the life, which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and happiness. And it says, to the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? For whatever reason, that the precise, to the precise extent, I just thought, like, down to the second. Like, so if I spend five minutes and seven seconds being angry, then I just wasted five minutes and seven seconds, you know? And and I think we could insert any form of uh, of self in there, whether it's resentments, I, to the precise extent that I permit fear. Do I squander the If I spend five minutes and seven seconds in fear, then I just wasted five minutes and seven seconds. If I spend five minutes and seven seconds in self-pity, then I just wasted five minutes and seven seconds. Right. And uh, I think something that Oprah was, Oprah said this, and it was really helpful for me. She was talking about acceptance, and she said, um, acceptance is giving up the idea that the past could possibly be different. And that for me really struck a chord because I look back on my life and how, especially with that, that traumatic event that how much I replayed that event in my life with a different ending. Like 
I should have done this, or I should have done that. Or if this had happened, mm. my life would turn out this way. Or if it, if it hadn't right. gone that way, then, you know, things would be different now. And it's like, eh, you know, why am I replaying it with a different ending? Because it's never going to have a different ending, you know, and, mm. you know, accepting it was, was uh, the first, the first step in, in, in the freedom that I, I feel now. I'm glad I, I'm glad I asked you about this because it's been something I almost, I, I thought that I was dumb for not really understanding step six and seven, but it seems to me with talking with, it, it seems more evident to me talking with you that step six and seven is, um, it's almost something that happens while working other steps, like yeah. while doing the inventory, while going out and making amends, you start to have these moments that forever change these character defects. They forever change your your mm. attitudes and your personality. Do you think that is that right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I learned a lot from making like I I did a lot of work in my inventory the, to the best of my ability at that time, and and I was like. You know, by the time I made amends to people, I, I really had compassion for what they had gone through. Like, what was it? Like, can you imagine what it was like to have me as a son? You know, like, what was it like to have me as a student or as a coworker? Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, like I had real compassion for like, oh my God, it must have been really difficult to be in any kind of relationship with me, you know? Um, so I did a lot of work and I just remember like when I made amends to my wife, I had real compassion. I started crying, like, I just, you know, while I'm making the amends, like, oh, my God, this poor girl. And when we got, when I got done, she, she said to me, she said, you know, the lying was the worst. And I thought, what? Because I did a lot really? of really fucked up things, you know. Um, and I thought the lying was the worst? Because I had that on my, you know, for sure, it was in my inventory. Yeah, I lied to my wife, you know. But then she explained that. She said, you know, when you lie, you lie really convincingly, you know, like, for example, if I was drinking and she accused me of drinking, I'd be like, oh, honey, come on. You know right. how hard I'm trying, how much effort I'm putting into to staying sober. And I'm trying so hard. Do you know how much it hurts for me to, to hear you accusing me? You know, after, and so it's so convincing that that not only does she question her own sanity, but now she feels guilty mm. for accusing me. And I just thought, oh, my God. That's awful. Yeah. You know, but I had no idea when I, when I did my inventory, like how, how much of an impact and, you know, my character defects. And like I said, you know, I knew dishonesty was a character defect. I could have said that before my ninth step before making amends to people. But when I made amends to people, that character defect was like, uh, yeah. And that, and through making that amends, that's when you started to yeah. change. You started to become more honest, right? Right you literally were the most honest you've ever been probably in that yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Real quick about sponsorship. Cause I see we're running out of time. Okay. Um, how long were you sober before you started sponsoring? Uh, five months. Okay. Yeah. I, it doesn't have a lot to do with time. I, I always, you know, I'm, I'm not a big, uh, uh, I don't, I, the amount of time somebody has sober doesn't carry a whole lot of weight with me. I remember, uh, it just in my own experience, uh, maybe I don't want that to sound offensive that it doesn't carry a lot of weight with me. I, my own experience was that I remember being four months sober and reading the 10th step promises and realizing that that had happened to my life, that, that wow. the obsession to drink is, has left. And it's like, oh my God, this is crazy, you know? Um, 
So uh, the the fact is I was four months sober, um, but the reality is I was on my 10th step. That's why I was mm. experiencing that. It wasn't because I was four months sober. It was because yeah. I was on my 10th step. So, um, you know, if you do the math, you know, I was on my 10th step at, at four months sober. And, you know, roughly a month later, I, I think I, it was when I first sponsored somebody. So it's not about, I guess, in my, what I'm trying to say is it's not about time it's like if i had been if i had been on my 10 step earlier then I've, I've had i've sponsored people who are you know working on 10 11 and 12 at 30 days and they're sponsoring people yeah hmm. that's amazing yeah i think it, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be this long drawn out thing it, yeah. it really people can spend so much time on six and seven when really like we just talked about it's how many sentences in the book how right. many it's actions are practically taken yeah. there um yeah I think that you are somebody who really shows the practicality of working the steps and how, like a coffee machine, right? It has a very yeah. intended purpose. It has this intended result. And what would you say to somebody who may have tried this process, may have given it their best shot, gone to meetings, had a sponsor, done their best to work the steps, although none of us are perfect, right? Right. And they continue to relapse. What would you say to them when they hear you talking about this procedure and just think, well, this guy's full of shit. I tried it. Um, well, I, I can share from my own experience that, you know, like I did, I did have that 20 year history. If you, if you count, if you start the clock when, at, you know, 1989, when I was 20 years old and first introduced to AA and, um, you know, over the course of the next 20 years, it was, uh, I was, I was that person who was thinking I was really believed I was doing AA, but not able to stay sober. Like it's a clearly doesn't work. Um, but when I met Clay, um, he took me through the big book and he, he pointed out, I, I gotta say like the most profound, um, thing for me. I remember, I remember sitting with Clay, we were at Starbucks and he was, we had our big books out and he seemingly was just randomly turning the pages and reading stuff. And he's like, do you know this? Do you know? I'm like, yeah. And I, and I remember in my head thinking like, you know, I've got 20 years in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous behind me and I'm a fairly smart guy and I've read the book. Like he's asking me questions like, you know, why do you, I remember he, he says, why do you think you drank again? And I'm like, I failed to enlarge my spiritual life obviously, you know, <laughs> and I remember just thinking in that moment, he's probably pretty impressed with my knowledge of the big book. <laughs> and, uh, but then he read pages 60 to 63 to me, which is the, the directions for the third step. And, um, when he got done, he said, you realize they're not really just describing an alcoholic here. They're describing most people, most humans, you know? And I was like, what? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought that was a description of what an alcoholic's life looks like. And it's always just, you know, the director disappointment. The show, and, yeah. That is this, this controlling person. And he's just always, you know, a life full of disappointment and, you know, being a victim and, uh, and no, all other people have this experience too. Like, uh, other people have insecurities. Like, um, you know, we tend to in Alcoholics Anonymous, we tend to really kind of separate ourselves more from humanity, like taking 
like we own the market on selfishness <laughs> and you know like something you know people will be like i don't know i went out on the freeway today and somebody cut me off and my alcoholic thinking is like i'm chasing that fucker down and i'm kicking his ass it's like you can't blame that on alcoholism there's that's you're being an asshole you know you're just you're being selfish like that's a human <laughs> human condition there's plenty right. of non-alcoholics that would that would do something like that or think that you know you get cut off and i need you know Will Smith. <laughs> if we're talking Yikes. about, you know, recent recent situations yeah. where somebody just fucking lost their shit and yeah. and you know, like that's something that, you know, we would uh it would, it would not be uncommon to hear that in an AA meeting and like and blame that on alcoholism. And uh, you know, I spent so much of my life being a victim and just thinking that I was more defective than than other people and that, that my life was harder because I'm an alcoholic that I was going to, I was more controlling because I'm an alcoholic. I, I have more insecurities because I'm an alcoholic and, and other people, if you know, non-alcoholics must not feel this, you know? And so I was a victim and I also had no ability to have compassion for, for what other people are going through, you know? Mm. Um, but that changed. Like when I went through the book, I think, I think the book is very clear on, you know, what, the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic it's 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 described uh, uh the first paragraph of chapter four we agnostics it says in the preceding chapters we hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic if you if you can't quit drinking or if when you drink you have a little control over amount you drink then you're you're probably alcoholic that's it there's no mention of you know right. are you extra controlling or are you extra insecure or anything like that there's one test in there if you want to discover whether or not you're an alcoholic you can you can go to the nearest bar room and try to drink and stop but you know so when it comes to alcohol we're we're different um but other than that i'm just a human being and and so are other people so that was hmm. probably the the biggest realization i i guess or the or you know the key i think that opened the door to to, to a, a completely new experience for me that that night when when clay said that to me wow it seems so contradictory right it's like i'm i'm admitting that i am an alcoholic that i am somehow bodily different than everyone else but at the yeah. same time i can recognize that yeah i'm a human being the things that i struggle with are very human i'm part of this race i'm part of this community yeah it's yeah that that's really interesting making that distinction yeah I don't have any other questions. Is there anything you feel like anything you want to add to this uh, incredible testament of what what <laughs> AA can do, what the twelve steps can do? Uh, no, I don't think there's anything that I can add. I just, you know, I I, I I'm very aware of like I think that was a great question that you asked. Like, what would you say to the newcomer or the person who's struggling who feels like they've done AA and you know. Um, I think about that a lot. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, in the big book, it, it, part of step 12 or working with others is, is that, you know, we get to know a person and be, so we can put ourselves in, ourselves in their shoes and, and see how we would like to be approached if the tables were turned. And, and I, I've had so much experience of being in the shoes of the newcomer. I've, you know, I'm a 20 year history of, of being right. a newcomer. I know what it's like to be a newcomer. And, and if, if there's anything that I that I wish I had understood or heard for me, you know, the, the Bill Wells or the James Woods thing with the pushing the button and not wanting to drink. I, I, you know, I, I try to, I try to explain that, which I think I've already done. You know, I, I, I think that's probably mm -hmm. the most mm -hmm. appealing thing that, 
I, I'm guessing if I put myself in somebody else's shoes, uh, a new alcoholic who, who, or a new member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, probably what they want to hear is that, Losing that um, desire. Yeah, the desire to drink will go away. Alcoholics Anonymous is not about a life of struggle. Hmm. It's not about, you know, this is another thing that, you know, you hear in meetings a lot that, you know, it's, it, you have to become a warrior. You're gonna be a fucking warrior. You're gonna be, you're gonna be an alcoholic for the rest of your life. It never goes away, and uh, it's gonna be a struggle and it's gonna be a battle. And that's not at all what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It's about mm. the, the the opponent um, doesn't show up. If the opponent, if the if the the opponent is this obsession to drink, it's we're not teaching you how to fight off the opponent, uh, the opponent, uh, how to win the battle. It's what what we do here is we're causes the opponent to not show up so there's yeah. no fight yeah walking off that battlefield yeah wow that is that's a relief for for a lot of people who struggle with this because that feeling that you just can't win the fight everyone has tried yeah. willpower everyone has tried again right. and again and again so i think that is a really good message to leave with listeners you don't have to fight this anymore the yeah. desire will go away yeah Thank you so much, Dave. This has been a really enlightening conversation for me, and you're just such a down-to-earth, regular person. I still can't picture you in the wife beater. So. <laughs> it wasn't I, a pretty picture. Yeah, just, just be grateful. <laughs> no more, no more tasers in your life, man. That's uh, yeah. No, no I more have tasers. not been tasered in a long time. <laughs> Hi, my name's Dave. It's been 27 years since I've been tasered. <laughs> Take care, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. To reach out to Dave, his Instagram is at TaserDave. Although he's not on there very much, I do recommend you go listen to the episodes that he did with Clay. It is um, a series they did on the Recovery Radio podcast called What Does the Big Book Actually Say? So I'm going to put a link in the description below. I think it's such a good series. I've listened to it a couple times myself. And yeah, if you were interested in what Dave was talking about, if you want to have that kind of experience, I, I really cannot recommend that series enough. My Instagram is at Addictive Podcast. Stay up to date with weekly episodes there. And shoot me a message anytime if you have any questions, any comments on the, on the show. I'd love to hear from you guys. That's all for me today. Until next week, remember, we recover together. <laughs>